Caring for those who are sick, regardless of whether or not they are approaching the end of life, is a fundamental part of the human experience. Palliative medicine, in a Western medical context, was born of the hospice movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. During this time, a tincture made of heroin, cocaine, alcohol, and occasionally chlorpromazine, colloquially known as the Brompton Cocktail, was a commonly used analgesic and sedative for individuals experiencing pain and other symptoms as they approached death. Now, palliative care encompasses more than end-of-life care and is rooted in providing symptom-directed care to all individuals with serious or life-threatening illness. Although the methods and ideologies through which we practice palliative medicine have evolved over the years, the goal of empowering and improving the quality of life of patients as they navigate illness has remained steadfast. Today, our patient is experiencing worsening, cancer-related pain and breathlessness, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, A Tale of Two Symptoms, An Approach to Palliative Symptom Management. Time for a minute physiology. The physiologic underpinnings of pain and dyspnea in the palliative care in cancer-related setting are often multifactorial and complex. First, we will discuss pain which is an unpleasant sensory, psychological, and emotional experience associated with tissue injury. The physiology of pain is generally classified as either being nociceptive or neuropathic in nature. Nociceptive pain is caused by noxious stimuli that threaten or result in bodily tissue damage. Neuropathic pain results from a maladaptive response to injury or disease of the somatosensory nervous system and consists of a central and or peripheral disorder of pain modulation. Colloquially, when speaking with patients, it is often referred to as nerve pain. Pain can also be defined according to duration. Acute pain is generally experienced for less than 6 to 12 weeks, whereas chronic pain is experienced for longer than 6 to 12 weeks. The physiologic mechanisms also differ between acute and chronic pain. Acute pain can progress into chronic pain through a process known as sensitization. A nauseous stimulus that results in tissue injury creates neuroinflammation. Alterations in pain signaling and perception through neuroinflammation can persist beyond the initial insult and lead to chronic pain. It is important to differentiate between acute and chronic pain, as the approach to treatment will be different. Cancer-related pain can be nociceptive or neuropathic and arise from the malignancy itself, from perineoplastic syndromes, comorbid conditions, or from anti-neoplastic treatments such as radiation or chemotherapy. Ultimately, pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon, with the biology of pain being inseparable from the developmental, emotional, and psychological context through which we experience and interpret pain. Next, we will discuss symptoms of dyspnea in the palliative care context. According to the American Thoracic Association, Dyspnea is defined as a term used to characterize a subjective experience of breathing discomfort that compromises qualitatively distinct sensations that vary in intensity. It is largely used synonymously with breathlessness. Similarly to pain, the experience of dyspnea is the result of the intersection between multiple physiological, psychological, social, and environmental factors. Most commonly, dyspnea arises when there is increased respiratory drive in response to mismatching in ventilation perfusion, increases in dead space, 
and the presence of metabolic acidosis. Chemoreceptors, located in the carotid body's and aortic arch, can sense changes in the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, as well as the presence of acidosis and hypercapnia. This, in turn, will stimulate the respiratory centers of our central nervous system and contribute to the sensation of dyspnea. Moreover, increased airway resistance, such as in the setting of COPD, or the stimulation of mechanoreceptors in our lungs and chest wall can also contribute to the sensation of dyspnea. Pain and shortness of breath are very common symptom-related concerns that we are routinely asked to assess and manage on the wards and on call. They are also among the most prevalent symptoms experienced by those with cancer. Most commonly, your patient will present with their chief concern being pain or shortness of breath. Cancer-related pain in particular occurs either directly from the malignancy itself, cancer-related treatments and interventions, comorbid conditions, or perineoplastic syndromes. Moreover, it can present in many different ways, such as with headache, bony, chest, back, abdominal, neuropathic, or total pain. Total pain is a combination of social, psychological, physical, and spiritual distress experienced by the patient. The presentation of dyspnea can also be varied. Patients may describe this symptom as breathlessness, chest tightness, an inability to catch their breath, or a sensation of drowning. This means that your differential diagnosis when assessing patients with these symptoms should include life-threatening causes of pain and dyspnea that must be ruled out. Examples of such life-threatening causes are acute coronary syndrome, infection, progression of malignancy, pneumothoraces, pulmonary emboli, pericardial tamponade or effusion, bowel obstruction, post-treatment complications, and spinal cord compression or caudic quinus syndrome. You will need to consider this differential diagnosis when conducting your history and physical examination. Your first step in any patient encounter will be to assess whether your patient is stable or not. What is their GCS? Are they vitally stable? Are they protecting their airway or showing any features of respiratory distress? Are they in an appropriately monitored setting? You must also discuss goals of care with your patient or review their previously expressed wishes. As discussed previously, the differential diagnosis for pain and shortness of breath in a patient with cancer is broad and includes many life-threatening etiologies. Once your patient is stable and you have confirmed their goals of care, you can move forward with the rest of your assessment. On history, you want to clarify the acuity of pain and dyspnea as well as conduct a thorough symptom assessment with the PQRST method. You will ask about any precipitating factors of their symptoms, the quality of their pain and dyspnea, if there is any radiation of the pain, the severity of their symptoms, in addition to the temporal features of their symptoms. Moreover, you will want to clarify if their dyspnea is positional, associated with paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, or if it is exertional. You will also want to ask about features of the history that might point you towards a specific diagnosis on your differential, such as a history of coronary artery disease or CHF, a history of fevers or other infectious symptoms, a history of metastases, a history of recent radiation, surgery, or chemotherapy, or a history of previous symptom management by a palliative care team. An important thing to mention here is that some conditions can coexist. For example, a patient may have both COPD and lung cancer, and therefore have multiple reasons for their dyspnea. You can also use the Edmonton Symptom Assessment System, ESAS, to better characterize a spectrum of symptoms commonly experienced by patients who have cancer. 
On physical examination, you must tailor your exam to the anatomical structure or body system in which the patient is experiencing pain. For example, if they are complaining of abdominal and lower back pain, ensure that you conduct a thorough abdominal exam with special care to determine if there is peritonitis, and an MSK or neurologic exam to rule out features of cauda equina syndrome or spinal cord compression. When a patient is experiencing dyspnea, a thorough cardiorespiratory examination is essential, as well as a volume status and peripheral vascular examination to assess for phenomena such as DVT, which may be linked to PE, as well as for adequate peripheral perfusion. Furthermore, the presence of malignancy or palliative medicine involvement in prior patient care does not mean that a patient is not for medical management or resuscitation. Discussing goals of care is an integral part of your history and should always be done to ensure management aligns with your patient wishes. In this clinical context, the extent of your workup will always depend on your patient's goals of care. The most important thing to note is that goals of care exist on a spectrum and a patient may want to have certain investigations or interventions that offer more information, while foregoing others that aren't aligned with their wishes. If they are for symptom-directed care, then you will proceed with managing their symptom-related concerns. However, if they are for medical management, then you will want to structure your workup around your differential diagnosis specific to where their pain is located and for the dyspnea that they are experiencing. When further investigating pain, you may want to order electrolytes to assess for hypercalcemia that could suggest bony metastases, which can be contributing to pain. Liver enzymes, liver function testing, and renal function assessments can provide information on end organ damage that may manifest as pain and guide management decisions on appropriate pharmacotherapy. If a patient has chest pain or abdominal pain, it could be useful to order radiography to determine if there are any bone fractures causing their pain or alternative diagnoses such as bowel obstruction. When further investigating dyspnea, a CBC may be indicated to check for signs of leukocytosis to suggest an infection. If sepsis is on the differential, then blood cultures, blood gas analysis, and lactate will be helpful. For assessment on angina as a cause of dyspnea, a troponin may also be helpful. Chest x-ray imaging can yield information on the presence of consolidation, pulmonary edema, pleural effusions, or pneumothorax that could be the cause of their dyspnea. To assess for pulmonary embolism, a CT pulmonary angiogram would be the investigation of choice. An ECG will assess for any ischemic changes or arrhythmia that may be contributing to dyspnea. Ultimately, the workup is largely dependent upon the findings of your history or physical examination. Your workup is complete and it is determined that the pain and dyspnea your patient is experiencing are from their underlying malignancy itself. Pain from invasion of the primary lesion into the chest wall, lymphangitic carcinomatosis causing worsening breathlessness, and not an alternative etiology. The treatment of cancer-related pain and dyspnea is multimodal and follows a biopsychosocial approach. It is also best conducted by an interprofessional team, where possible. In 2019, the World Health Organization updated their guidelines for the management of cancer-related pain. In adults and adolescents who have pain related to cancer, pain management is generally initiated with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication, NSAIDs, acetaminophen, and or opioids. They're used alone, in combination with each other, or with alternative adjuvant analgesics. Example of adjuvant analgesic agents include steroids such as dexamethasone, antidepressants such as tricyclic antidepressants or SNRIs, anticonvulsants such as gabapentin, and bisphosphonates such as zoledronic acid. Regular clinical assessments and pain severity, 
dictates which medications you should use and when you should use them. Moreover, the use of agents such as antidepressants allows you to address other illness concerns such as depression or anxiety that often occur concurrently with pain and dyspnea respectively. Opioids, and in particular oral morphine, are considered the gold standard for the treatment of moderate to severe cancer pain. As a healthcare provider, it is essential to highlight the benefits and risk of opioids for cancer-related pain. In particular, common opioid-related side effects include drowsiness, constipation, puritis, and nausea. More significant adverse effects include opioid-related neurotoxicity, which can manifest as vivid dreams, myoclonus, hallucinations, and hyperalgesia. If there are any patients on opioids, it is essential to also prescribe a good bowel regimen to prevent constipation. There are also a myriad of interventions such as surgery, radiotherapy, and even nerve blocks that can be utilized to address cancer-related pain. Next is dyspnea. The treatment of cancer-related dyspnea often overlaps with cancer-related pain and should be managed promptly to avoid any suffering. You can stratify your management of cancer-related dyspnea into non-pharmacologic strategies, disease-modifying treatment, and symptom-based treatment. Non-pharmacologic measures for dyspnea include elevating the head of the bed, utilizing a fan to blow air gently across the face, meditation, relaxation therapy, cooler temperatures, and pursed lip breathing. In regards to disease-modifying treatment, your disease-modifying treatment will be dependent upon the cause of your patient's dyspnea. For example, you may need to diurese a patient that has symptoms and signs of overload, or you may need to optimize a patient's inhaled corticosteroids or bronchodilator therapy if they have COPD with breakthrough symptoms. In regards to symptom-based treatment, opioids are a key component of the pharmacologic management of dyspnea. Oral and parental opioids have been shown in numerous RCTs to decrease the sensation of dyspnea in patients with cancer, end-stage CHF, and end-stage COPD. Generally, dosing opioids for dyspnea follows the same protocol as for cancer-related pain except that the starting dose is usually lower and the titration may be more gradual. There is currently no evidence to support the use of nebulized opioids for the treatment of dyspnea. If a patient is hypoxic and dyspneic secondary to cancer, then there is also a role for supplemental oxygen therapy that you can titrate to both symptom burden and peripheral oxygen saturation. For patients that are pursuing symptom-directed care, you do not need to confirm hypoxemia on an ABG in order for them to acquire access to home oxygen therapy. Additionally, there may be a role for procedural interventions such as an indwelling pleural catheter, example Plurex strain, if malignant pleural effusions are contributing to a patient's dyspnea. An important part of the management of cancer-related dyspnea and pain is to refer patients to a palliative medicine specialist, as evidence shows that patient mortality and quality of life can improve with early involvement of these specialists. Did you know that palliative care was a term first coined by Dr. Balfour Mount, a urologic cancer surgeon from McGill University in the 1970s? Dr. Mount created the term to highlight supporting those living with terminal illness with attention to quality of life up until the moment of death. He, with close colleagues, also created the first international conference on palliative care in North America, which has since become the International Congress on Palliative Care. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled A Tale of Two Symptoms, An Approach to Palliative Symptom Management. This episode was written by Justin Boyle, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Mary Leung, internal medicine physician, and Dr. Daniel Kane, palliative medicine physician. 
The Internet Work series was created by Alison Lai and co-developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. This episode was recorded and produced by Zara Morali. Music production by Laxman's Vantha Mohan. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Please also go to our website, theinternetwork.com, for an associated infographic. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.